Our text for this afternoon is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Did you get it going, Owen? You're so good at that, buddy. We have a new helper making our stream work, too, so we got all kinds of good work going on around here, guys. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. This is the word of Almighty God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Pray with me, friends. God, it is good to have sung your praise. And it is good to have your holy word. And now, God, I pray that you will teach us from your holy word to live, that we might have joy in salvation, joy in Jesus, joy in fellowship, joy in being your followers. Teach us to live in a world that is very difficult because you are mighty and holy and worthy. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And I'll let you be seated. If there's one thing that is certain about the times in which we live, it is that we live in times of uncertainty. Wouldn't you agree with that? Whether it's COVID, whether it's race relations, inflation, crime, governmental intrusions, the fall of Afghanistan, the society that we're in feels unstable, doesn't it? There are many Americans right now turning more to to drugs and drinking for soothing their fears than ever before because people are as frightened or as confused about life as they've ever been. And even in our own city, we've experienced change after change after change in the past year and a half. We have seen society shut down and restart. We've seen restrictions come and go and come and go. I could do that for a little bit longer. We've borne witness to heated conflicts between believers who honestly and deeply disagree about the way forward for themselves, for the churches. And man, I understand. And I got to say to you that we have no reason to expect our culture to change toward becoming more stable anytime soon. As believers, we need a place to turn when we find ourselves standing in the midst of an uncertain culture in unpredictable times, we need somewhere to turn in the word of God to show us what to think, what to do, how to have courage and stand strong. And we could look a lot of places. You could read the whole book of Revelation for this. But today we'll turn to the letter to the Hebrews. 
I want to take a little mental journey. Are you willing to play a little imagination with me? In your imagination, I want you to put yourself back in time nearly 2,000 years. Go back 1,955 years, give or take. Put yourself in Israel around the year AD 66. And I want you to imagine that you're ethnically, ethnically, if I could talk, this would work better, ethnically Jewish. You've lived your entire life with the temple standing in Jerusalem as the centerpiece of your culture and your nation's faith. And now there are two very significant changes. First is the rise of a faith that feels to you both old and new. Some people call these people Christians. Most people call them followers of the way. And they've shown you that Jesus, a man who ministered in Israel a little over 30 years ago, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel and to the world. They've told you Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. He lived the only perfectly lawful, perfectly sinless life in human history. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of God's law. Then he willingly died as a sacrifice to pay the price for the sins of everybody God would ever forgive. Jesus is Messiah, the promised one, the coming king, the Christ. And Jesus completed the sacrificial system. It is finished. And now Jesus calls on all people of any people group all over the world to turn from their sins and trust in him for salvation. But a second change is also happening on the temple grounds. By AD 66, men who say that they love God are doing terrible things at the temple. They're fighting. They're fighting for political power. They're fighting for control. Evil men are actually slaughtering one another in places that you have always been taught as a young Jew were holy. Blood is being spilled around the altar, but it's not the blood of animal sacrifices. It's the blood of victims of treachery and deceit and murder. And it's being shed at the hands of men who want only power. It reminds you of the stories you heard of the evil, abominable, desolating sacrilege of Antiochus IV during the days of the Maccabees. And you know that this mess around the temple, it's already set things in motion and it's going to bring the Roman army into Jerusalem in force. You know it. You know that someday, and you can't say for sure how long it's going to be, Roman soldiers are going to surround the city and they're going to utterly destroy those fools who think they can defeat an empire with a band of rebels. Come to think of it, you know that one of your Christian teachers told you that Jesus actually said there would come a day when Jerusalem would be surrounded, when the bloodshed and destruction would be great, and when the temple would be taken apart brick by brick by brick. And Jesus said to run away from Jerusalem as soon as you saw that kind of mess in the temple. 
If you were a Jew who had believed in Jesus and who lived during those days, you would know that you're living in times of more uncertainty, even more unpredictability than the times you and I live in today. And I believe that the Jewish believer we just sort of imagined ourselves being, that is exactly who the person for whom the book of Hebrews was written. Over the first nine and a half chapters in the letter to the Hebrews, the author has reminded us that Jesus is everything Jesus ever claimed to be. He is the one promised by God. He is superior to Moses, superior to all the priests, superior to the angels, and he is the fulfillment of the covenant of God. All of the sacrifices, all of the ceremonies of old find their completion and find their fulfillment in Jesus. All that stuff that you did in the temple pointed people to the Jesus who was to come. And now salvation is not based on the temple and it's not based on the ceremonies. Instead, salvation is based on the grace of God that we receive through faith in Jesus and his completed work. The author of Hebrews basically finishes his explanation of the superiority of Jesus and how he fulfilled the Old Testament system. He finishes all that in the middle of chapter 10. And moving forward from that point, he's going to teach the readers about what do you do with what I just told you? We know Jesus is God in the flesh. We know Jesus fulfills, he completes the old covenant laws. Jesus rendered the temple obsolete. But now what? What do we do living in a world that's changing in ways that a person living in first century Israel could never have imagined? Do you see why this passage is actually a good place for us to study for a minute? We live in an uncertain, rapidly changing world. We feel frustration, don't we? Do you not feel some frustration in the society in which you live? Do you not feel like things that used to be certain are just falling to pieces around you? Many people around us feel fear. Well, what does God say to do if you want to live in an unpredictable time? I'll give you four points from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 to help us learn to live and follow Jesus in an unpredictable time. Point number one, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Start there. Look at verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we'll stop there. Now, I know you know the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. What do you do in the Bible when you're reading the Bible and you find the word, therefore? What do you do? What? You ask what it's there for. That is a great rule of Bible interpretation. If you don't know that one, put it in your pocket and keep it, okay? When you find therefore, look for what it's there for. When you read words in the Bible like therefore, so, 
since, because, you have to assume that there's a chain of reasoning. Because this is true, do that. Since this is the case, respond that way. Now that you know this, therefore, that. Make sense? The therefore here is there to catch everything the author of the letter to the Hebrews has been writing from 1-1 to 10-18. It's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus, how Jesus fulfills God's promises, how Jesus fulfills the purposes of the Old Testament law. And the point here is, because of the gospel, the author of Hebrews has things he wants followers of Jesus to do and to avoid. And since we know that's what's happening, our first point has to be that if we want to survive in uncertain times, we have to remember the gospel that's been presented in this book over the first 10 chapters. Now, thankfully for us today, instead of having to revisit all 10 chapters, we can catch a little bit of a summary in the therefore section. Because I'm guessing you guys don't want to stand here with me and study Hebrews 1, 1 to 10, 18 right now, right? Some of you are up for it. You're sweethearts. Let's, let's think about the gospel. Jesus is the son of God. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all of God's law. Jesus died as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins and Jesus rose from the grave to give eternal life and cleansing grace to every person who will repent of their sins and believe in him. Y'all buy that? Every one of us deserves hell in, because of our natural sinful state. We can have heaven not because we do good works, not because we follow any religion, but because of God's perfect grace through faith in Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Now, to the person who grew up under Old Testament law, this stuff sounds too good to be true. Because Jews grew up knowing that they, because of sin, they did not have the right to go into holy places. Only the high priest can go in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Him only once per year. The Jew understood you can't approach God by yourself. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 ask the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Now I want you to listen and think if this naturally sounds like you. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go to God's holy place? Here's the answer. Ready? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. How many of you think you qualify naturally with clean hands, a pure heart, never having said or done anything false? Only a pure-hearted, perfect person can approach God's throne. But in Hebrews, keep your eyes in Hebrews, it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. If you are an underliner or a highlighter, that word confidence is worth noting, don't you think? 
We have confidence. The blood of Jesus makes it possible for you and me to enter the holy places. We can approach God. And not only can we enter the, the presence of God, not only can we approach him, we can do it with confidence. We can happily, eagerly, joyfully go before God because we now know that the blood of Jesus Christ has paid the price for every one of our sins if we're his. The psalmist in Psalm 24 knew God has to give you righteousness as a gift if you want to enter his presence. You know what he wrote? Right after saying the one with clean hands and pure heart can approach God, in verse 5 of Psalm 24, he writes, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. How can you enter the presence of God? In the Jewish mind with the temple at its center, the only way to enter the presence of God would be for you to pass through the temple veil and to go into the holiest place. But now the author of Hebrews says, we enter the presence of God by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We don't go through the temple veil to enter the presence of God anymore. We come to God in a brand new way, a living way, We go through the torn flesh of Jesus who sacrificed himself to welcome us into the family of God. The Jew also knew, even if you could get clean enough once to approach God once, you need somebody to talk to God on your behalf to represent you to God. You need somebody to entreat God on your behalf. And to the Jew... In the temple system, that was the high priest. Of course, the problem is the high priest is a sinner too. And he had sins to deal with. But here in our reminder of the gospel, the writer tells us, and since we have a great high, great priest over the house of God, we have a great, great priest over the house of God. Friends, we have a priest to represent us before God, to intercede on our behalf. And it's not a sinful man. You know who intercedes with God on our behalf? It is Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, the one who lived and died and rose for our justification, he is now seated in heaven and he says he will play the role of our advocate. I want you to listen to some things already written about Jesus. If you're a fast page flipper, you can flip to chapter 4. If you're slow, just listen. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Listen to this and tell me this doesn't give you joy. Since then we have a great high priest. Sound familiar? Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, here comes what we just read, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Flip to chapter 6, verse 17. I'll show you another one. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. 
So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's also familiar to our passage today. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on a for, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. One more, chapter 7. Chapter 7, 23 to 25. We could have really read all 10 chapters and been just fine, by the way. But look at this. Look at this. 723. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Back to chapter 10. For the Jew, this is new, this is glorious. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He has gone beyond the true veil, not not a replica veil that was down on earth. He's gone through the true veil, but he's gone into the heavenly holy of holies. And Jesus there opens the way for us to join him in the presence of almighty God forever. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our intercessor Even today, for all of us who know Jesus, for all of us who've been saved by his blood, we have Jesus, God the Son, talking to God the Father on our behalf. When we fail, do you ever fail? When we fail, Jesus reminds the Father that he died to cover that failure. When we deserve for God to cast us away, Jesus reminds the Father that the Father gave us to Jesus as a gift that he would never cast out. When we would not be clean enough to approach God and have God hear our prayers, Jesus reminds the Father that he has already given us the gift of his righteousness so that we approach the Father not in our goodness, but in the perfection of Jesus Christ. And let me say to you, because I don't want you to be confused by what I just said to you, this is not the Father and Son battling it out over us. The Father loved us and cherishes us so that he sent his son to be our savior. And now the father who still loves us and still cherishes us, hears his own son whom he loves and cherishes, reminding him, though he would never forget it, of the the fact that Jesus died to purchase us for God. Remember the gospel In an unpredictable, shifting, changing, confusing world, remember the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. 
If you've never been saved by Jesus, repent and believe today. But if you have been saved by Jesus, rest in him as a hope and solid anchor through this life. Now, beyond remembering the gospel, and let me say to you, that would be enough for a good sermon right there. Not because I preached it, because it's just good. But beyond that, we're going to find three things that the author of Hebrews commands by the authority of God. Each command begins with the phrase, let us, and each command draws on the beautiful virtues of faith, hope, and love. So point number two, draw near to God. Point number two, draw near to God. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now don't forget the context. Don't forget the story that we went into at the beginning. You're a Jew living in the first century. Everything around you feels like it's changing. All the stuff you used to think were solid and stable seems to be going away. The temple has lost its value. Perhaps quite soon it's going to be destroyed. And when you and others around you get this letter, you're reminded for nearly 10 chapters of the grace of God that's come as Jesus fulfills the law. The gospel's good. It's very, very good. And you've been reminded of it. But what now? What do you do now that you know the gospel? Draw near to God. That's the first command. We saw it in chapter 4, 16. We saw it in chapter 7, verse 25. Don't hang around on the outside anymore like there's a wall between you and God. Don't build in your mind a barrier to separate yourself from the Lord freely in Jesus Christ with confidence. Draw near to God. Of course, this has to do with prayer. Don't look to a priest other than Jesus. Just talk to God. Relate to God through God the Son because God loves you and welcomes you. He's always going to be solid. He's always going to be stable no matter what the condition of the world around you is. How should I draw near? First, draw near honestly. Draw near with a true heart. Don't play games with God. Don't hide anything from God. Just bear your soul to the God who saves you. Talk to him. Tell him your fears, your hopes, your hurts, your faults. Tell him he knows it anyway. Tell him because he invites you into his presence. Draw near in faith. Draw near to God, believing that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, as you read in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Trust God. Trust that he knows you. Trust that he's in control. Trust that he has forgiven you all of your sins, past, present, and future in Jesus. Trust that he'll never lose you. Trust that Jesus is seated on the throne of the universe right now and that he will one day return and finish establishing his kingdom with us forever. 
And we see two truths that think, help us think about drawing near to God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The sprinkling of our hearts would remind the Jew of the Old Testament sacrificial system. See, the blood of a sacrifice would be sprinkled before the altar on behalf of the sinner and the sinful people that the people might be forgiven. And at Mount Sinai, blood was sprinkled to establish a covenant relationship between God and the people of Israel as a nation. So for all who have Jesus Christ, we already have forgiveness of sins and we have a relationship established between us and God, a covenant relationship with God because Jesus Christ has sprinkled us with his blood. And then it says the washing of your bodies with pure water. That reminds us of the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament and ceremonial cleanness. Back in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, you could be contaminated by sin. You could be contaminated by things that were just unclean based on the law of the Lord. You could be made unclean by touching bacon. Praise God to be in the New Testament. You could be barred from the community or from the worship of God for a time if you were unclean even through no fault of your own. That's the old covenant. But now, see the new covenant, yes the new covenant fulfills the old, but the new covenant's better than the old but now we're clean because of Jesus. God cleanses us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God grants us righteousness so that we are always free, always free to draw near to him in prayer. You're always free in Christ to come to God. You don't have to be cleaned up again. You want to live life and stay solid in a shifting, unpredictable world? Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done and draw near to God in faith. Point number three, though, gives us another one. Hold fast our hope. Hold fast our hope. Verse 23 let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Draw near and hold fast. To what are you to hold fast? Hold fast the confession of our hope. You saw this in chapter 4, 14. You saw this in chapter 6, verse 18. In the Bible, the word hope means more than what many people think today. In our culture, you use the word hope for wishful thinking, don't you? I hope it's not too hot for the picnic. I hope we get a good seat in the theater. Unless you're Ben, I hope it doesn't rain on family camp. <laughs> ben was just singing in the rain, y'all. Just singing in the rain. 
But when the Bible uses the word hope, guys, it uses it as a sure thing, a certainty, but one you haven't experienced just yet. So as an example, we hope in the return of Christ. Now, let me ask y'all, is the return of Christ a questionable thing? No, it's a sure thing. It's going to happen. We hope in it simply because it hasn't happened yet. So because of the gospel, hold fast the confession of our hope. Do not waver. Do not doubt. The God who has made his promises to us is faithful. He's totally faithful. God will never, ever lie. He cannot lie. He can only promise what he will deliver. So to hold fast the confession of our hope, what are you going to hold fast to? Hold fast to the scripture and to biblical truth. Part of keeping our footing sure in an unpredictable age is to hold fast to the word of God and to sound doctrine. For the first century Jew, AD 66, let's say, there's a temptation coming very quickly before the temple is destroyed to return to Jewish religious practices. Many New Testament letters talk about Judaizers, the supposed Christians who say that you got to return to the Old Testament law if you're going to really be a Christian. Those things are addressed really, really clearly in the letters to the Galatians and to the Colossians, among others. To the modern American Christian, though, there's other temptations. We're not tempted to go back to the temple, but there are temptations to let go of biblical doctrine for social acceptance. But if we're going to stand we must hold fast the confession. We must cling to the word of God. We must contend for the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. We must never look for doctrine to be different than the doctrine of the faithful church for centuries. Even when it's not popular, even when it will get you thrown in jail, even when it will get you killed. Hold fast the word. I wrote some of this before. I don't even have a note on this, but right now, guys, right now, in Afghanistan, believers are giving up their lives because they will not compromise the word. There are people right now who have a choice. You can choose to be safe or you can choose to be faithful to the word of God. Faithful believers choose faithfulness to the word of God above personal safety. And we must be a people who cling to, who hold fast the hope of the promise of the word of God, even if it costs you your life. Remember the gospel, draw near to God in faith, hold fast the good confession and hope. Fourth point, last point, still with me? Spur one another on. 
That's an NIV sounding point, but I just love the way it said it. So spur one another on. 24 to 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the final command for this section. We're called to consider something. What does that mean? Consider it. Take thought. You are to look for something, to seek it out, to make sure you find it. What are you to look for? Look for ways to stir up one another. The word for stir up there, that's a word that means to spur each other on, to stimulate, to provoke. In a confusing and in a hard world, a Christian should seek out ways to move other Christians toward love and good works. We are to look for ways to push one another toward loving God. And we should be pressing one another toward loving other Christians. And we should help each other to find ways to honor God through good works. The truth is, Christian, and I hope you're listening, if you are not encouraged by other Christians, you are likely to slack in your call to love God and love others. You will let slide the call to do good works for the glory of God if you are not being encouraged by other Christians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, you should know this passage by now if you've been here a while. It says... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith apart from works. Amen? We are to respond to being saved by doing good works that God prepared for us long before we were ever born. And we need to encourage one another to love God, to love Christians, to do the works for which God created us. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to give us a contrast to the command to stir one another up toward love, to godly living. He writes, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Apparently, there were some Jewish believers who were neglecting the regular practice of gathering for worship and fellowship. They developed a habit of absenting themselves from corporate worship. Maybe they were tempted toward the temple. Maybe they just didn't want the ridicule that they would have faced in their community. Maybe there was just apathy. But some of these folks had developed a habit of forsaking the gathering. And the author of the Hebrews tells you this is the opposite of stirring up one another toward love and good deeds. The Bible's clear we are not to give up the practice of gathering with Christians for worship and for fellowship. 
Instead, we are to encourage one another. Please, please see the point. When you fail to gather with other believers, you fail to encourage other believers and yourself toward love and good works. And the author tells us that this commitment to the gathering of believers is something we are to do more and more and more to be even more faithful as we see the day approaching. That could, of course, be a reference to the day that the temple would be destroyed, but more likely, it's a reference to the coming day of the Lord when Jesus returns and will judge the wicked and will bring to consummation his glorious eternal kingdom. Did Jesus ever give us any signs of when the day was approaching? I think he did. In fact, I think we could find a list in Matthew 24, 1 to 14. The signs have been with us, by the way, from the beginning of the church age. But you tell me if you see these things active, okay? In Matthew 24, 1 to 14, Jesus says, these are signs that, of, of, of the day of the Lord, I believe. False Christs, Verse 5, wars and rumors of wars, 6 through 7, famines, verse 7, earthquakes, verse 7, persecution of Christians, verse 9, apostasy, meaning supposed believers turn away from the faith, verse 10, false prophets, verse 11, the love of many grows cold, verse 11. Do Do you see any of those things in the world you live in? But also with those, as the day draws near, there will be enduring faithfulness of suffering Christians, verse 13, and the global spread of the gospel, verse 14. As you see things like that, as you see evidence that the things Christ has predicted are coming to pass, as you see reminders that the day of God's glory in his faithful and the day of God's judgment of the wicked is on the way, you should become more and more committed to gather with believers for worship and encouragement in the faith. There is no way for us to be faithful to others or to ourselves in the Lord without a genuine commitment to regularly participate in gathered worship. Now listen, I understand. For some, there will be seasons when you are providentially hindered from worship. You might get sick. If you're sick, I prefer you not to come here and make the rest of us sick. I think you get an amen from the rest of the room on that. Sometimes you will be physically restricted from being able to get where you gather. If I was back in Illinois, I'd talk to you about snowstorms. That's probably not going to stop us from meeting here, though. I'm just going to say right now, we're meeting even if there's a snowstorm, y'all. But, and I want you to hear me, the Lord is clear that living in an age of hardship and unpredictability requires that we grow more fervent in our commitment to gathering, not less. And I want you to see as well that your commitment to gathering, it's not about you getting something out of it for yourself. 
Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't think I'm going to go to church. I just don't get very much out of it. I don't care. I would like for you to get a lot out of it. But your commitment to gathering according to the word of God is about you obeying the command of God that you stir other Christians more and more toward love, that you stir other Christians toward loving God, toward loving other Christians, toward doing good works that that keep with repentance and faith. It's about you encouraging other believers. So when you're not with other believers, you don't encourage other believers. Does that make sense? It's not about you. Do you know how we know that this church is not made about you individually? Because we do things you don't like. You know we do things I don't like, right? I'm not going to tell you what they are. Unless you buy me dinner. But all in all, there's things we'll do that I don't love most because I know some of you love them lots. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the Lord and us as a body. And if you're not here or if you won't participate, it's not just about you. You Rob others. Let me ask you, as you think about your Christian life, are you currently seeking ways to encourage other believers and stir them up toward love and good deeds? If you want to live successfully in this age, you must As the first century Jews saw the coming destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem, his world had to seem as unstable as water. And as you and I live in a world that's changing more rapidly than we ever imagined, we know what this feels like. What a glorious thing that God would give us in his holy word, clear reminders of what to do. What are we supposed to do? First, remember the gospel. You can do nothing to stand strong without being saved by Jesus. You can do nothing in your own power. But if you've got the gospel, you know you've got salvation, cleansing, and a high priest speaking in heaven on your behalf. Aren't you glad about that? Second, draw near to God. Pray. Love the Lord. Find ways to honestly get closer to the God who loves you and welcomes you into his presence because of Jesus Christ. Draw near with confidence. Third, hold fast to our true hope. Cling to scripture. Cling to true doctrine. Cling to God's promise of resurrection. Cling to God's promise of eternal life with Christ. Look forward to the returning of Jesus. Do not let go of true faith for the sake of worldly acceptance. It's not worth it. And fourth, finally, think hard about how you can help other believers love the Lord and love each other. Think about ways to join other believers in doing good deeds that show the world the glory of God. Never give up gathering together for worship and fellowship. That means Sunday matters. And it means fellowship groups matter. And it means being in each other's homes other times matters. And do it more and do it more and do it more as you see the signs of the day of the Lord approaching. Let's pray together.
Father, you're good. And Father, we live in uncertain, unstable, difficult times. And we would plead with you, dear Lord, to grant us memory of the gospel, hearts that draw near in confidence, minds set firmly on hope, character committed deeply to the body of Christ for the glory of God. Lord, only you, only you can help us be what we're supposed to be. We pray that we will. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.